Our song of preparation is number 128 in the Blue Psalter hymnal, if you turn there. Though I am poor and sorrowful, pay attention to the second stanza here. Then will I praise my God with song. To Him my thanks shall rise, and this shall please Jehovah more than offered sacrifice. Connects very well with our passage from Jeremiah 7, which I'll be reading in just a moment. So let's stand together and sing stanzas 1, 2, and 4 of number 128. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, I'll be reading the first 15 verses of this chapter. God's Word to the people of Judah through the mouth of His servant Jeremiah. Let's listen attentively, for this is God's holy and inspired Word. Jeremiah 7, beginning at verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your harm, then I will let you dwell in this place." in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, 
commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called to you, you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, I will do as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And we're going to conclude our reading of God's Word right there. Well, dear friends, uh, you have no doubt in your life run into somebody who is superstitious. Uh, perhaps it was a, a friend or a, a family member, maybe a colleague at work, who, who believed that by saying a certain phrase or by holding a, a certain set of beliefs or uh, practices that, that they could bring about in their lives good or bad luck, depending on the case. Uh, superstitions are very common in our society. No doubt you've seen them. We see them among the Hollywood actors. Uh, among stockbrokers on Wall Street, especially professional athletes are known for their often bizarre and ridiculous superstitions. There's uh, one retired baseball player by the name of Turk Wendell. Some of you baseball fans perhaps remember him. He was voted one of the most superstitious athletes of all time, and he had the bizarre habit of chewing licorice and brushing his teeth between each inning of a baseball game. Now, he never won any World Series, so his superstition didn't seem to help him all that much. But the fact of the matter is that many people hold on to their superstitions without knowing why or even if their superstition helps them in any way. But they hold on to it because it gives them sort of comfort, some sort of assurance. It's a security blanket for them, so to speak. Well, in our passage this morning, we see that God's people people of Israel, have developed for themselves a superstition. They've adopted a superstitious trust in the temple. But all the while, they have rejected their covenant God. They failed to worship God with genuine heartfelt worship the way that He commands them. They consider their temple worship to be little more than a lucky charm to, to ward off evil, and they believe this deceptive idea that as long as they retained a close association to the temple with its sacrifices and its symbols and all the activities of temple worship, as long as they remained close to the temple, as long as they went through the motions, you might say, that they were safe. They were secure. They were safe to sin. And so Jeremiah is called by God to, to preach to them, 
And he calls them to change their ways. Amend your ways, he says to them, and they respond, oh, Jeremiah, come now. This is the temple of the Lord. We're here. We're here in the temple of the Lord. We're doing all the things that we're supposed to do. We're fine. Don't worry about us. They trusted in the material buildings. They trusted in the rituals. They trusted in the traditions and the habits of temple worship, but they forgot that what God required of them was living sacrifices, contrite, obedient hearts. That's what the Lord desired. That's what they had forgotten. They had all the outward show of godliness, but they lacked the obedient hearts from which that godliness must flow. And so their worship was a show. It wasn't sincere. Their devotion was outward. It wasn't genuine. And God comes to them here through Jeremiah to expose this foolish superstition, this self-deception in which they had fallen into, and He would call them to see, as He would call us to see this morning, that we are not safe to sin as the people of God. Rather, we have been saved to obey, and God demands from us genuine, heartfelt devotion. I want to notice uh, together, first of all, God's shocking message to the people of Judah, and then uh, secondly, God's sufficient Messiah. Before we look more closely at that message, that message that Jeremiah preaches to the people, we should notice, first of all, the unique and shocking way that he brings that message to the people of Judah. Because the Lord calls Jeremiah to stand at the gate at the house of the Lord and to proclaim this message of repentance, to call the people back to the Lord, to change their ways before the Lord. He calls Jeremiah to go to the gate of the house of the Lord. He calls them to go to the temple to proclaim this message. Now, imagine what that would look like today. You hop out of the family van on Sunday morning, you head towards the church building, and there, right at the front door, standing on a soapbox so that everyone can see him, waving his arms, crying out at the top of his lungs as you enter the church, is Reverend Niemeyer. I can use him as an example because he's not here this morning. He'll get me back later, I'm sure. But there's Reverend Niemeyer at the front door of the church, and he's yelling at the top of his lungs, you need to repent. Change your ways. And you might go into the building and whisper to one another, I think he's finally cracked up. Because after all, Pastor Niemeyer, we're doing what we should be doing on Sunday morning after all. What's the problem? How can you call us to repent and change our ways when we're about to do the very thing that God commands of us? And so the way in which God calls Jeremiah to preach to the people is in itself rather unusual, shocking. But what we need to notice is that the method of his preaching gets to the heart of his message. It gets to the heart of the problem in Israel. That though the people appear to be going through all of the right motions as God's covenant community, in reality their hearts were very far from God. And that's why Jeremiah preaches his sermon, to call the people back to a heartfelt, obedient worship and living. And he says to them, first of all, you need to change, you need to amend your ways and your deeds. But what had Judah been doing? What was the problem? First, 
Uh, They had come to believe this deceptive, superstitious idea that they were safe in the temple and that they could do whatever they wanted. Now, it's important for us to remember what's going on here in Judah's history. So, it's, it's helpful to take a look back at what's taking place. This event, this sermon of Jeremiah takes place in Judah before the Babylonians have come to take the people of Israel into exile. And so the reality of the exile, being taken away from their home, being brought to a foreign land, the temple being destroyed, all of that has not yet happened. But the Lord has promised that if they don't amend their ways, it certainly will take place. So the threat is there. The warning is there. The fear should be there. Exile is coming unless they mend their ways. But that hasn't happened quite yet. What has happened by this point are the reforms under the king Josiah. Some of you may remember that during Josiah's reign, the law of God was rediscovered. It had essentially been lost and removed from the life of Israel, and it was rediscovered in the temple. And King Josiah, who was a righteous king, issued great reforms in the nation to call the people back to God. Uh, The law was read once again to all the people in a public setting. There was widespread repentance in Israel after that took place. But now we find ourselves later on in Judah's history. That has already happened, and the people have apparently gone back to their old lifestyle. They've gone back to their evil ways, their idolatry, their adultery, their false gods. And they've uh, adopted this, this terrible, deceptive idea that the temple and Jerusalem was impenetrable, that there wasn't an army that could could get in there and they were safe. And the problem was that the people believed that they were safe to do all kinds of wicked and abominable things before the Lord. They could entertain all kinds of impurity in their lives, but they were safe. They were secure as long as they stayed close to the temple of God. As long as we perform our sacrifices, as long as we properly order our worship, we're good. And Jeremiah comes to them, first of all, to tell them how false that confidence really was. It's a false hope. It's a false comfort. There's no truth in it at all. That's the first problem. That's the first issue. But we also learn of other problems here in chapter 7 that flowed out of their impure worship. In verses 5 through 6, Jeremiah calls them to amend their ways, and specifically, he calls them out for failing to act justly. Uh, The people of Judah were not caring for the needy in their midst. They weren't caring for the disabled and the weak, the fatherless and the widow. Jeremiah says, what a tragic thing that is, because you were once needy. You were once disabled and weak and subjugated. You were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out. What a terrible demonstration of ingratitude that you would now pervert justice in your own midst. But the people had forgotten that. Not only uh, was that part of their sin, but also in verses 9 through 11, we see that the people had turned back to their idols. They were worshiping false gods. Jeremiah says, you're worshiping gods you don't even know. Gods that haven't done anything for you. Gods that are no gods at all. Made of wood and stone, crafted by the hands of men. You're offering sacrifices to Baal, who has never helped you once. 
And instead, you've rejected the Lord of glory who rescued you from Egyptian bondage, who protected you all throughout the wilderness, who brought you to this wonderful land, and you have forgotten Him. And we see that all these violations of God's law flowed from their false worship, their hypocritical devotion to God. And with all of that in mind, the Lord comes to them with this very shocking question in verse 9 and 10. He says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. We're safe. We're secure. Only to go on doing, continuing to do all of these abominations. The Lord says, I've been watching. I'm not blind. I'm not deceived. I see that though you've been going through all the right motions, your hearts are far from me. And we wonder, will the people get away with such false worship? God says right off the bat, not a chance. He says, I'll prove it to you. I'll prove that my house, all this, this temple in which you trust, is not impenetrable to attack. He says, do you need proof? Take a trip. In the latter part here, he says, go with your family and, and go, go look at Shiloh. I'm going to do to Jerusalem, to its walls, to its temple, what I did to Shiloh. Boys and girls, what was Shiloh? You may remember from Sunday school that Shiloh was the place where the worship of God took place before King David built Jerusalem as the capital city, as the place where the temple would be built. But if the people took Jeremiah's advice and went to Shiloh, they wouldn't see very much. It wasn't very impressive because Shiloh wasn't even there anymore. Shiloh had been torn down. It was a pile of rubble probably destroyed by the Philistines in the 11th century. Why had it been destroyed? Well, the people of God had forgotten God. They had turned to idolatry. They had adopted the gods of pagan nations. They had begun to worship falsely without heartfelt obedience. And the Lord brought about destruction in Shiloh. And the Lord, by calling the audience of Jeremiah to go to Shiloh and take a look at it showed them that their temple too was not impervious to attack. His people, the people of Judah, if they did not repent, would also be cast out. If they didn't reform their ways, Jerusalem and its temple would become just like Shiloh, rubble. They would become like Ephraim before them, cast into exile. So Jeremiah says, amend your ways. You must repent. You must change. Your hearts must become genuine before the Lord so that your actions will be genuine and acceptable to me. Then I will let you live in this promised land. Then I'll renew my covenant promises with you. But if you do not repent, you will be cast out. Destruction will be the consequence. But of course, how do the people respond? The rest of the chapter lays it out. The people respond according to their self-deception. 
They looked at their traditions. They looked at their practices. They looked at their sacrifices. They looked at how many times they went to the temple during the week, and they said, Jeremiah, all that you have said we are doing already. Just take a look. We're safe. We're secure. They didn't understand that what the Lord desires is genuine lives of worship. What they didn't understand is that the sacrifices, the outward acts of worship in and of themselves are not enough. They weren't sufficient unless they flow from a heart of obedience and faith. And John Calvin reminds us that that God has never so bound Himself to a particular people that He is not free to discipline them when they fall into grievous sin and error. And we as believers need to be very careful of that as well. That as we live in this this gracious, this bountiful covenant environment in which the Lord has brought us as, as members of His church, we must never fall into the error of thinking that we are safe to sin, that we can hide away in this wonderful place all the while with sinful and insincere devotion to God because He sees our hearts, brothers and sisters. Israel was not safe to sin, though she thought she was, and we are not safe to sin either. Of course, it is true that as as Christians, as Reformed Christians in particular, we have a wonderful set of habits that we enjoy. We find uh, great comfort in our meaningful traditions, in our our weekly calendar, in our Sunday observance. This, This building is beautiful. It's secure. The programs of this church are wonderful, but God would have us see that however valuable these things are to our growth in the faith, to our spirituality as believers, no matter how beneficial they are, these practices are never an acceptable substitute for a genuine and active faith in the living God. Because outward religion, merely going through the motions, is unacceptable to Him. He will not have it. It cannot please Him. Traditions, good as they may be, must never remain mere traditions. All of them have to be examined from a heart of of true devotion and faith. And that kind of devotion that God requires of us combines right doctrine It involves the right practices, helpful traditions, but it must be combined with a consistent and godly life, with a passionate zeal for God's glory and His holiness, with a passionate zeal to live our lives, our entire lives, as an act of worship before God. And that's Jeremiah's message to the church. Unless your temple practice is truly a reflection of your godly devotion, then the Lord will not accept it. It will not please Him. You are not safe to sin in this blessed context in which the Lord has placed you. He wants your whole heart. He wants your whole service. And that's Jeremiah's shocking and straightforward message. We see, as we turn to the second point, that Judah had turned God's house into a den of thieves. The people had turned God's house into um, a house of robbers, and this displeased the Lord greatly, and it displeases Him greatly 
when we would seek to do the very same thing. And we come to the point of the message where we consider our great need as sinners. Because a requirement has been placed before us here in this passage. We have been called to exhibit a perfect zeal, a perfect righteousness, a perfect holiness, a perfect passion for the right and holy worship of God. That's our need this morning. And yet there's not a single one of us here this morning that has done that. There's only one who has ever exhibited that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for the holy worship of God and for His house. That, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's zeal, you may remember, was displayed in a wonderful way during His ministry. In John chapter 2, we find out that in, in Jesus' day, the Jews' perspective of the temple was very much like the Jews in Jeremiah's day. The Jews in Jesus' day had also turned the temple into a den of thieves into a den of robbers. Those who were coming to celebrate the Passover, uh, for example, were, were being mistreated. They were being cheated of their money. They were being overcharged. The temple was filled with money changers and tax collectors. And you remember, this account is included in all of the Gospels. I'm sure you boys and girls have learned about this in Sunday school. You remember that the Lord Jesus came around Passover to the temple, to His Father's house, for which He is very zealous. And he saw all of this this terrible activity, this sinful activity going on in the temple, and he said, can this be worship? Can this be the kind of worship that pleases God, this profanity going on in my father's house? And we read that in righteous anger, in righteous indignation, he took a whip of cords and he drove the money changers out. He overturned the tables because he had a perfect zeal for genuine faithful worship in his Father's house. And we read in John 2 that later on his disciples remembered this event, and they remembered how Jesus fulfilled the words of Psalm 69, where we read, zeal for your house, O Lord, will consume me. And that zeal of our Lord Jesus, for the house of God we know would one day lead to the cross. Christ in His death, in which He bore the disgrace and the scorn, the abandonment and the shame that our sins brought upon Him, there on the cross He exhibited perfect zeal for a genuine holy life before God according to His Word perfect zeal for the holiness of God. And there on the cross, He fulfilled the words of David, because zeal for your house consumes me, the insults of those who insult you are upon me. There on the cross, Christ in His perfect zeal for God's holiness, for God's house, for God's people, endured the insults and ultimately death from those who would seek to turn God's house into a den of robbers, those who would live before God in a manner unworthy of Him. And brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, it's our call to imitate Christ in His perfect zeal for holiness before the Father. Like Christ, we ought to be filled with grief by how many have attacked God 
We ought to be filled with zeal for obedience to God's Word. We are called to imitate Christ. He calls us to devote ourselves totally to the advancement of His divine glory, to endeavor that in everything we do, in word, in thought, in deed, that we honor Him, we defend His glory, that we be very careful that His glory is not obscured by the sin that remains in our lives. But the question that always presents itself to us when we are called to imitate Jesus is this, how? How could we possibly imitate the perfect Lord of glory? Well, I will tell you this this morning. It's not by adding to our agenda more churchly activities. As if by going through the motions, as if by, by adding to our churchly repertoire more outward demonstrations of piety, that that's how we become more Christ-like. No, we must not be deceived. Those things have their place, to be sure, but it's by trusting in what Christ has already done for us in His own perfect display of zeal for the holiness of God on the cross. That's where we must begin. Christ's obedience is the only thing that's able and sufficient and necessary to enable you and me to live genuine lives of worship before God rather than hiding away here while holding sin dear to us. And we see that Christ has done that by fulfilling, by doing what the old covenant could never do for us. The old covenant could never provide the necessary obedience but Christ obeyed perfectly. He provided the obedience that you and I need to live before Him. So we need to go to Him. We need to trust Him. We are brought to God through Him, through His perfect act of zealous obedience on the cross. That's what we see, don't we? When we see in the aftermath of Christ's death upon the cross as He gave up His Spirit, what happened to the temple? After Jesus' death, what happened to the temple? Its building, its sacrifices, its curtain, its lampstands, its ark, its symbols, etc. What happened to that whole system? All these things ceased to exist because they always existed to point forward to something better than themselves. They pointed to Christ to the one who exhibit perfect zeal, perfect worship before the Father through the giving of His own life for your redemption and my redemption. And even now, following Jesus' victorious resurrection, we have been given the Spirit of Christ so that right now He is establishing a different temple, a new temple. But it's not a temple of stone or mortar or wood. It's the temple of His church. It's made of spiritual stones. It's not made with the hands of men. He's establishing His spiritual church, His spiritual temple. That's us, the church. And He dwells in us by His Holy Spirit continually. And so He demands of us not mere outward practice, not merely going through the motions. He is looking for contrite, genuine repentance and obedient hearts. He wants our worship to flow, not merely from our mouths, but from the depths of our being. 
He says to us in 1 Samuel 15, to obey is better than sacrifice. To offer tender and heartfelt, genuine worship of our whole lives is better than simply going through the motions because God requires genuine faith, obedience, and worship from us, not make-believe. So I urge you this morning, brothers and sisters, by faith, cling to God. Cling to Christ, His Son, and pray for the Holy Spirit who is within you to cultivate within you the desire and the ability to live genuine Christian lives. Pray that He would help you reject mere outward practice, mere traditionalism. Reject that deceptive and superstitious idea that this gracious context allows you to be safe to sin. Turn to Christ. Look to His obedience, for He alone can give you the power to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice of praise, holy and truly pleasing to God. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do know our tendency to think that by simply acting the part, by simply fulfilling the outward practices of the Christian faith, that that is enough. And we confess that we fall into that error because we are far more concerned about what other people think of us than what you see in our hearts. You've made abundantly clear in this passage that you desire obedience and worship that flows from genuine faithful hearts that are zealous and passionate for your glory and holiness. And so may we not be, O Lord, a den of of thieves and robbers, a den of hypocrites, but may we be a community that is vibrant and faithful. And in striving to be so, may we look to Christ, who exhibited perfect zeal for your glory during his entire life, but especially on the cross. We come to you this morning confessing that we trust in Him. We trust in His work. We look to Him in faith, and we trust that you, by your Spirit, will enable us to make small but real beginnings in holiness as we grow into a community of zealous Christians devoted to your will, not merely to the outward exercise of holiness. Bless us now, O Lord, as we leave your house. Bring us back tonight to worship in the splendor of your glory and holiness, not simply in motion or by habit or by tradition only, but that we would come tonight as we came this morning with a sincere desire in our hearts to give ourselves to you in genuine service and worship. For it is our hearts that you judge, and it is our hearts that you see most clearly. Bless us in the rest of this day, O Lord, may it be devoted to You and to spiritual rest and to the truth of Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.